The measure of everyday life is made possible by support from RTI International, an independent, nonprofit institute dedicated to improving the human condition through research, development, and technical services. More information at rti.org. Wherever you are, welcome to our show. Recently, I dropped my son off at an art museum to visit a friend from out of town. And I drove away wondering what effect that the setting might have on the conversation that the two of them would have. How might art spark curiosity or open lines of thinking that wouldn't otherwise have occurred? Well, we sometimes look to the arts as an outlet for enjoyment, but we can also seriously consider the idea that the arts can affect our social interactions, our future imagination, perhaps even how we learn. Our guest today has spent a lot of time thinking about such ideas. Susan Magsman is the executive director of the International Arts and Minds Lab at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to our show, Susan. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Great. Well, I, I'm I'm fascinated by your career um, you know, to date. You know, you've you have a background in communication and business. Uh, you've also been a really important champion for the integration of the arts in education. How did you get involved with the work of bridging the arts, education, and, and neuroscience? So, yeah, my path is uh, very zigzagged and. <laughs> And I think that's um, really an important part of sort of how um, my perspective has has changed and grown. Um, I have to go all the way back to when I was 12 years old and my sister, I'm a twin, had a very serious accident and um, had to stay home uh, through something called home and hospital. And during that time was the first time that we were really separated. Um, so I went to school. Uh, I was am still and was then a real nature lover and spent a lot of time outside playing. My sister um, discovered art because she was so bored being home. And she had a teacher who said, you know, try drawing these things, you know, thinking about sort of getting out how you feel um, on paper. Um, She had a lot of anxiety and real trauma from this accident. And so I'd come home from school and, you know, being with kids and, her name is Sandra, she would show me things that she had created. And it was through seeing the things that she created that I was able to know how she was feeling in ways that she couldn't find words because um, they were, it was before words. It was fear and dread and anxiety locked in her that was not able to, she was not able to verbalize it, but she was able to find symbols and drawing and to be able to see the world in colors and in shapes Mm -hmm. that she had never before. And as you know, she continued to draw, she, um, her way of expressing herself became a visual language and she still, she's an artist today. What I found was an ability to put um, words together and to sort of understand um, more in um, language, what was happening around me. So um, I always say that I'm the poster child for this field because um, the reality is while my sister became a very wonderful, um, successful artist, I really can't draw, not a good dancer, can't <laughs> sing, my husband's uh, total, you know, ear problems, um, you know, uh, I'm not a great writer, um, but I get so much out of these 
self-expression forms because they're really about going inside and having a process. And I think my career has really been about creative self-expression, um, which is communications and how do you share something so that you understand it, but how somebody else understands it. Um, so my early undergraduate work was in uh, creative arts and recreation therapy, where I worked with lots of different populations um, at a school called Shepherd College in West Virginia. Yeah. And I was there for about two years. And then I, I moved back to Baltimore um, and got my communications degree at, at Towson University. Mm -hmm. And it was really because there was nothing that integrated the arts and communications, self creative self-expression, unless you wanted to be an artist. And I didn't, I wasn't going to be an artist. I couldn't be an artist, but I wanted to really think about how the self-expression could manifest and, and how you could learn more and understand more about the world, culture, ideas, by being able to be immersed in doing something. Um, so fast forward, um, I started to work at a company called Barton Gillette. And they were a very innovative communications company um, that worked with uh, three populations. They worked with cultural arts organizations, educational institutions, and kind of C-suite um, Fortune 500 companies. And I very early on um, helped them figure out how to build strategic plans for the cultural arts groups and the education groups. And I was really drawn toward this idea of how do you create uh, structure and goals and milestones around uh, these organizations. And, and the reason I got an, an MBA was that um, I realized that for cultural arts organizations and nonprofits, sustainability was elusive. It was either um, at the, at the um, kindness of philanthropists, so that meant every year you had to figure out how to find the funding to keep your program going and you couldn't scale it. So I really wanted to understand from a business perspective how these large companies uh, scaled and how they grew and how they created more sustainability. So, so I sort of meshed together this idea of art, communication, and business to yeah. think more deeply. And then I had a, my very first um, uh, company. I've started a couple companies over the last while um, was called Curiosity Kits. And that grew out of, so cu curiosity to me is the driver of humanity. Yeah. And um, when I was at Barton Gillette, I was asked by a children's museum to develop a summer camp called um, the Summer Chautauqua in um, 1983. And um, it was a cultural arts camp that looked at arts, sciences, and world cultures. And it was all multi-sensory and hands-on learning. And I developed these, these uh, units where we brought in people from different communities um, to share their experiences and use some kind of immersive experience. Could be art, but it could also be a science experiment, could be some kind of cultural um, uh, drumming or, or dance or, or uh, we did Indonesian shadow puppets, batik, mm -hmm. and things that really expressed a deep cultural connection and then explaining what that was and allowed kids to really ask questions in a non-stigmatizing way, but to be able to, 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 to engage, to communicate. Um, and so the camp was the, one of the most successful things the museum had ever done. And they asked me if I would be interested in trying to kind of package these things up so that families throughout the year and in educational programs could use them. So I said, sure. So I called them curiosity kits because the camp was just about curiosity. 
Um, and I started to have other museums call me and say, could I use these? Could I use, could, could, could I get those for my museum? Um, we, so we ended up working with the Smithsonian and Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, all museums all over the country, um, ultimately educational organizations, um, schools, uh, after school programs. And so I, I ultimately created a company called Curiosity Kits that grew to be uh, very large. And um, we worked with National Geographic, with Scholastics, with many, many organizations that were interested in thinking about learning through a different paradigm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so that that was really sort of how I began to think about arts and learning. And then just quickly, um, you can't learn if you're not healthy. You can't learn if you are traumatized or you have um anxiety or stress. You can't learn um, if you are um, physically um, in pain um, or there's something happening in your family where you're unable to focus as a child. You can't learn as an adult if any of those things are really um, the overriding issue in your life. And so in um, around 2002, maybe 2003, I was asked by the School of Medicine to help build something that is now the the Arts and Mind Lab. We had a donor who was very interested. I had always worked in and out of academia, but Hopkins, um, I first started working with School of Ed on arts and learning, and then started working with the School of Medicine to build what's now the International Arts and Mind Lab and Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics. And all big words for really thinking about how how do the arts and aesthetic experiences change you, um, how they change you physically and mentally, and how you can use that knowledge to create practices, prevention, interventions, protections um, that help us grow and learn and 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 or address well-being and both medical and me- mental and physical health so um, you know the you know it's funny you don't know what your journey is going to be um, and I can only look back and say here's how the dots connected but yeah. for me I just always followed my passion and my yeah. interest and my curiosity and there's you know so much need um, in the world. Yes. No, I, I, there's so much in that that I, I actually personally can relate to, you know, just these themes of the, you know, the surprising you know, importance in so many areas of, of communication, empathy, you know, curiosity. And uh, you found, you know, different ways to you know, practically, you know, give people tools for that, which is you know, really, really fascinating. You know, in a couple minutes we have here before the break, um, I, I want to talk about one of the specific initiatives you've been involved with you know, recently, um, you know, that, that does help to, in a concrete way, um, you know, offer a path forward, I think, for different organizations. It's something known as the NeuroArts Blueprint uh, Initiative. Can you explain for our listeners, you know, just briefly here before the break, um, you know, what that is? And then we'll talk more about it after the break. Sure. About three years ago, uh, we were um, asked by our leadership at Hopkins to really sort of explain sort of what this whole field of arts and health was. And what we realized was arts for health was everywhere and it was nowhere because uh, it's so decentralized and siloed. So you can be arts and public health, you can have arts at bedside medicine, you can have creative arts therapies, psychiatrists, rehabilitation folks, neurologists, many fields, teachers use the arts, 
but there's no coalescing around how these groups use the work. And also bringing in the basic science and the biology of the arts, there's never been a lot of funding for that. And so um, working with the Aspen Institute, our lab went on a two and a half year journey to really understand what the community felt they needed and wanted, and was it time to really build a new field? So we now are building a field called NeuroArts that is really focused on making arts and aesthetic experiences mainstream in health and medicine and public health. And it's a very exciting five-year implementation plan that moves the field from lots of extraordinary work to really coalescing this around sort of a field like climate change or bioethics or women's health so that there is funding and there is sustainability. So you can kind of see where this idea of um, structure and sustainability that I started with early on just has continued to move through. And in this case, it's so important because people that use the arts, there's not a great um, economic base to secure that you build that field. Yeah, no, that's and and what's what's fascinating. You, know, you found a way to then you know there's a, a template, a blueprint, um, but then could, that could be applied in um, you know, different areas with regards to different topics and, and challenges. And, and that's something I, I want to talk a little bit about you know, in the second half of the show as well. Just the uh, the fascinating range of applications. Um, you know, once you stop and think about it, that there is for for this type of approach. Um, and so, look forward to, to talking more about um, all that. There's so much more we can discuss about. Uh, you know, the roles that, that art can play and uh, the arts can play in society um, in general. We'll talk more uh, with Susan Magsman of the Johns Hopkins University when we return. You're listening to The Measure of Everyday Life, produced by WNCU. This is 90.7 WNCU Durham. Welcome back to our show. Today, we're talking about the arts and our brains, and we're also talking about different initiatives to uh, connect the arts with education and with different organizational efforts, uh, even the ways that the arts might um, be an intervention that we can look to uh, in the world of medicine and, and public health. We're, we're sitting down with Susan Magsiman of John, the Johns Hopkins University uh, here, and she uh, works at Johns Hopkins, um, you know, to, and she's the director of a really interesting um, initiative, the International Arts and Minds Lab. Uh, and we've been talking a little bit about um, how she got to this point, and now in, in the second half of the show, um, you know, Susan, I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the path forward, um, but also about, you know, some of the challenges, you know, that we might see in, in implementing, you know, some of this work. You, you talked about a, a wide range of different examples. And, you know, when, when we mentioned the arts, um, you know, as a phrase, even, you know, we're covering a pretty wide range of visual and musical and tactile activities. <laughs> so practically speaking, you know, has our progress in connecting the arts and education been more successful or easier in, in some of these domains uh, with some, you know, uh, media, with some, you know, t- types of activities than in others. What's what's the experience been in terms of, um, you know, thinking about the range of, you know, what the arts cover and, and how well we've been able to integrate, you know, in each of those areas? So that's a great question. Um, often I think about the arts as the elephant in the room and depending upon where you touch it, you get a very different experience. Um, whether that's the art form, the use of the art 
for learning or for physical health, mental health, or well-being, whether it's in the workplace, in the healthcare setting, whether it's an educational setting, you, you're you're always touching on something that that's different. And you may not be able to connect all of those pieces to kind of pull back and see the big, the big picture, the big elephant. Um, I think that um, the, the, the science of the arts is really uh, the driver that's going to feed um, all of these different sectors, whether you're in education, healthcare, um, workplace, um, public health. Uh, and I think that, 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 by, that, 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 Research is really what I what I call ways of knowing, um, and there's lots of ways of knowing. There's you know basic science. There is qualitative and quantitative types of studies. There's you know making sure that the end user, whoever that is, is part of the the communications, very much driving the way that you think about solutions in those areas. Um, in I would say in education that um, the arts have really. Um, uh, the, the movement towards art, and, and I don't mean being a good painter, the proficiency of art, but using art for social emotional health, using arts for um, connection and belonging, using the arts for identity, using the arts as integration to understand content better in any discipline has been woefully um, neglected and marginalized and sidelined it, in most schools, public schools. It's a nice to have, not a have to have. And I think the arts are totally misunderstood. Um, um, and I think there's a lot of mythology around the arts, you know, that they are elite. They are, um, you know, something that is not um, important. Um, and and because of the, what we, we put money around what we value, right? We, we, we put effort around what we value. And I think because the arts are so misunderstood, they're not ubiquitously valued. And that isn't to say that, if you asked people, and we did this recently, asked people what, you know, did you, general public, do you think the arts are important? Yes. Do you think health is important? Yes. Do you think arts and arts and health go together? We don't know. We've never, we don't know this. So I think there's a lot of education and that's one of the things that the NeuroArts Blueprint is doing around learning in, in formal and, and informal places. In healthcare, I think we've seen the arts be more successful. Um, I think it's a different business model. Mm. Um, and, and so you have creative arts therapists. In workplace, we're seeing architects and designers really use this work to enhance uh, workplace, um, whether that's around cognitive load, focus, co collaboration, community building. It's a different economic model, right? Public health, you know, I think we see the value of culture, building culture, uh, or not building, enhancing, allowing culture to thrive on its own because it, it, it will in public health settings and using the arts to help to address different, very significant issues around gun violence, street violence, um, you know, along with other systemic solutions, you know, including, um, you know, under-resourced communities, housing, um, you know, how you build a housing program where it allows for uh, a sense of community, not, um, imprisonment. Even yeah. the prison system is used thinking about the role of arts and arts are, you know, we have a, we, you can think there's 10 or 12 different art forms from performing arts, you know, creative writing, uh, music, dance, culinary arts. Um, technology is creating new art forms and will continue to create new art forms. Yeah. And I think 
we're going to see more and more ways that we express ourselves if that's what if that's how we define art yeah that's that's actually that's that's interesting there's two two points there's so much in what you just said that's that's really fascinating but two things i want to draw on a little bit you know, further you know, this notion that we might see you know new technologies and that people are continuing to discover ways to express themselves is i think is is important and so i think it's one of the reasons why it's important that we um, you know, look to um, you know all different types of communities and different types of people, and, and what they are doing um, in their own lives. Um, you know, too, to to try to um, express themselves. And and I'm interested. You, you talked about this notion that we shouldn't be thinking about art. Um, you know, from the standpoint of it being elite necessarily. Uh, and and this is this raises an interesting question in terms of access. I know that a lot of what um, you know your your lab has tried to do is to work you know, with the different institutions to promote you know, the arts and to increase accessibility. Um, you know, but you know the truth is that even now, you know, not everyone has equal access into different institutional efforts. And so, um, even though you know, of course, you all are, are trying to improve equity, I'm curious, you know, just even today and this week and, and this month, you know, what are some steps that any one of our listeners could take to more fully embrace the potential of the arts you know, in their everyday lives for free without even necessarily needing to engage an institution? Are there are there ways that you know anybody listening now um, could really take to heart some of what you're saying and, and perhaps find some relief or find some um, you know different expression? Uh, are there? I'm just wondering if there are any practical tips or ideas that um, that you and your colleagues tend to talk about? That's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, agency, personal agency is really uh, at the heart of art. No one can take your art or your aesthetic experiences from you. They're yours. Mm -hmm. And I'll start with something as simple as what, what, what I call the aesthetic mindset. And it's, it's really three components. Um, one is thinking about um, being aware of your, sen- your, your, your sensory aesthetic surrounding. So what are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you tasting? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? And tuning into what's around you, you know, like uh, for me right now, you know, I'm noticing that the sun is beaming in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I can see different shades of green. I'm, I'm tuning into my surroundings and, you know, we live in such a transactional world that we often forget about the transformation of grounding and being luminous in space. And, and then the second piece of that is, um, you know, are you making, are you creating? And, and when I describe that, you could be a doodler. You could write down words on a page that describe how you feel. You could be a knitter. You could be a crocheter. You could be someone who likes just to walk in the woods. What are you making and finding, you know, taking leaves and putting them together in a, in a bouquet. Um, you know, are you a gardener? Like, what do you do and how do you use, how do you use those tools and materials around you? It doesn't matter what they are, um, to be able to, um, express yourself. And then do you participate in, in other people's art? And that could be, you know, singing around the dinner table, you know, Friday night dance parties. Um, these don't have to be going to the museum and seeing the latest show or going to the theater. Um, how, but if you think about the arts and aesthetic experiences, all of those you have agency around, you know, do have you tried a different kind of food? Um, so I, I think, even thinking about soundtracks or um, playlists, um, I think it's important to say too that the the because these experiences affect neural, psychological, immune system, circulatory systems, respiratory systems, higher brain functions. When you, uh, reward, um, thinking about um, affect, 
changing by, you know, changing your mood, noticing how these experiences are changing you will give you clues on, on what you want to move toward. So like what music relaxes you, um, that you're listening to, what gets you excited, um, even how you think about waking up in the morning and what you need to really start your day is a it's through the kinds of light you have or humming in the shower um you know humming in the shower activates the vagus nerve humming active singing hmm. and something as simple as that can change your mood so back to this idea that personal agency is is accessible to you um and and these other uh things that are less um accessible, um, I think will come, you know, these systems, these structural systemic systems are coming along. And that's what this neural arts blueprint is really about. But it needs to start at the personal individual level as well. Yeah, no, and and it's, it's, just as a sitting listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, uh, we put this show together, you know, every week, and uh, Mark Keith um, is our senior producer. He's sitting listening in you know, right now, and I, you know, so we're always working in this audio, uh, you know, medium. But I know that a really important part of his life is he's a very talented um, you know, photographer and, and and does videography you know, work, and so that whole visual dimension you know, matters too as a, a place of expression. And you can start to see you know the ways that people can use these tools, um, you know, for different uh, ways of of um, you know, creating their own life. Uh, you know, professionally and, and personally too. So it's it's just it's interesting to hear you talk about all that. I, I the last couple of minutes we've got, um, you know, Susan. I, I also like to sometimes open the door here for practical consideration for how people can get involved, um, you know, professionally in in what you're doing. Um, and you, I imagine you've inspired a lot of listeners, uh, you know both in terms of their personal lives, as we, as we just talked about, but also perhaps even in terms of professionally contributing to the types of work that, that you and your colleagues are doing. And from that standpoint, I'm curious, you know, what are the skills or experiences people should be developing who might want to contribute you know, to formally organizing um, you know, some of these efforts, to doing some of this work at an organizational level? What are you all looking for um, so that people could train and, and get ready to help um, you know, down the road? So I think there's a lot of ways to enter this field. If you're already working within um, an arts organization, um, you, you can volunteer at an assisted living program. You can volunteer at your hospital. You can. There's ways to begin to build experience th that are as simple as just going to to an organization within your community and saying, I'm here to help. Community centers, YMCAs are really open. Yes. We have a lot of programs in Baltimore. But if, from an organizational perspective. Um, part of the, one of the things that the blueprint is doing is um, creating something called community arts coalitions and uh, cities, you know, the, everything that we're talking about might sound um, ethereal or academic or high level, but the reality is arts and life happen on the ground, right? Yeah. We're place-based. And so what a, what a city or a rural community does in terms of pulling their academic researchers together with their creative arts community organizations, with their uh, community leadership is really important. So we're working in different communities to create best practices on how to bring these community arts coalitions together. Yeah. And that's something that I think anybody in a community that's interested can can reach out to me and we'll have a kind of a, a guidebook for that. We're, we're also looking at sectors. So museum sector, library sector, 
performing arts groups, sectors, theater mm. sectors, where we can bring those those groups together and help them develop best practices on how to work with their communities um, through the lens of neural arts. So yeah. I think it's the science of the arts. You know, these organizations have always been there and artists have always intuitively known what works. But what yep. we're trying to do is provide additional resources and knowledge that can help inform practice and create the sustainability and maybe even greater impact. Yeah. So it's really is about bringing people to I think of it as a very giant watering hole um, where people can come and, 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 and I should say one more thing, we're building a platform through the neuro arts blueprint that Google is going to build for us, which is extraordinary where you can literally, I think of it as the, the virtual watering hole. You can come and um, you'll have a, a, a profile page that li- that outlines everything you do and you can find others that you're interested in knowing more about in a very easy way. So it'll take us about a year to get that up and running. But once that that asset is built, we'll start to build forums so that smaller groups of people can come together and meet and talk with each other. There'll be academic um, educational pathways that you yeah. can tap into, funders, things like that. That's all That's all so exciting, you know, Susan. And I, I wish you luck with that. And we'll keep an eye on on all of that. Uh, we're just about out of time you know, now, but um, we th- thank you so much for sharing your story and for putting a spotlight on the practical um, and, and useful role of, of the arts in so much of our lives. So we really appreciate you joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank Great. you. Thanks so much. And I want to thank our listeners, you know, as always, for tuning in. We always appreciate your support as well. Um, this is Brian Southwell. Stay curious out there. The Measure of Everyday Life is made possible by support from RTI International, an independent nonprofit institute dedicated to improving the human condition through research, development, and technical services. More information at rti.org.